You're listening to the Cats Roundtable. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Cats McKeithes here. Sunday morning. What's going on? Seven days till Christmas. We have a great show to you today. We have Governor Patterson uh, and Peter King, Congressman, and what's going on? The Democrats and Republicans in our country, in our city. Dick Morris. Oh, you'd like to hear what he has to say later in the hour. Assemblywoman Seawright, what's going on with 2,000 5G antennas? Are they dangerous for New Yorkers, and is it going to change our DNA? Let's start off with Zach Williams and get a report of what's going on in the state with Albany. With us today is Zach Williams, the Albany reporter for the New York Post. And uh, Zach, uh, seven days to, to Christmas, a few more days for Hanukkah. Uh, what's going on in Albany? Is, is Albany quiet? <laughs> it's never quite uh, quiet in Albany. In fact, when it's quiet everywhere else, that's probably when uh, you got to pay attention the most. And this week, a couple uh, significant things happened. You know, this is a time of year when, when governors traditionally um, go through hundreds and hundreds of bills passed by the state Senate and Assembly months before. And Governor Kathy Hochul uh, is just the same. She vetoed a number of bills, um, including a couple that caught my eye. One of them would have limited how helicopters, you know, those pesky tourism helicopters could have used the West 30 helipad in Hudson River Park, which just so happens to be the same helipad that Hochul often uses for her own taxpayer flights around the state. Uh, So she vetoed a bill that would have not only limited um, non-essential flights there, it would have also allowed people to sue if and when the chopper flights got so loud and annoying, it was just beyond reason. Now, it's interesting she vetoed that one. She vetoed another bill as well, which is interesting in light of all the grief she's gone about bail reform. Now, this proposed bill would have allowed convicted felons to work at casinos and other gaming facilities. Right now, if you're convicted of a whole bunch of crimes, you just can't work at a casino. This bill would have changed that, which is really interesting because we are slated to get a couple new downstate casinos in the coming years. And this, you know, the proponents had kind of, you know, um, presented this idea as something that really would give people a second chance as we all kind of discuss how can we really keep people from reoffending. The governor, though, vetoed that one. She also vetoed the helicopter bill, but she did sign into law another interesting bill, which will ban effective in two years, the commercial sale of dogs, cats, and rabbits. Now, I don't know too many people that go around buying cats. I got mine free from the garbage. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, and rabbits are pretty niche, but puppies, you know, we've all gone to puppy, you know, to pet stores and seen puppies in the windows and all thought about dropping a thousand dollars, some dog with papers. That's not going to happen anymore in New York, New York state. Once this bill takes effect, although what's really interesting about it, it's labeled as um, a crackdown on puppy mills, you know, these facilities where they just have, you know, these poor dogs, they just have to, you know, give birth to litter after litter after litter. That's no good. Everyone likes dogs and wants, you know, female dogs to be happy and everything. But this bill would not ban the puppy mills. It would ban pet stores from selling pets. Um, so you could still go directly to the breeder 
Or, as is likely for a lot of people, you could just go to New Jersey or other states where pet stores can continue to sell puppies, kittens, and rabbits. They inbreed a lot of those puppies and, uh, and, and end up with problems with the uh, animals? Well, I think there is no shortage of stuff out there, research, good research, that shows how, you know, the current way that, you know, a lot of um, dogs are bred. You know, these animals you pay a thousand, two thousand dollars for, you know, uh, it could certainly be made more humane. Now, but what pet stores said was, hey, look, we're a pet store. We sell pets. We think that we get our animals from reputable breeders. Now, you could believe them or not believe them, but that's what they say. And they also add, well, you know, if we're just selling pets, why don't you crack down on the breeders and ban what they do rather than just saying categorically pet stores can't sell pets? I think that's a, I think you are 100 percent correct. Why? Why? You know, hopefully the pet stores are honest. What, what do you think? Well, you know, one key issue here is you got to keep in mind, not all breeders are in New York State. So, you know, if you, you could ban the breeders here in New York State, but what do you do about the pet stores that sell pets that are, say, from Pennsylvania? So that's how, you know, proponents of this bill, you know, they really get back to the animals. They say, look, you know, there's plenty of good dogs out there at animal shelters and, and other places that you can get, you know, that need a home. And we all love dogs. I like dogs. Uh, but, you know, but at the same time, you just got these pet stores and they say, you know, we're being singled out. This is going to hurt us. And, you know, we think that the dogs we sell are treated pretty good. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, they say that the perfect can't be the enemy of the good. And if you're a supporter of this bill, then that's what you might say about, uh, you know, these pet stores that are just going to be, uh, out of luck right now. They did secure one little change though, that will allow them to charge, animal shelters for hosting um, adoptive animals in the pet stores. But I don't know how much of their bottom line that's going to make up for. Understood. What, what, is there anything else? Well, one big issue is, remember, when it gets, <laughs> when people aren't looking, that's when it can often be busiest in the state capitol. And I'm hearing that the state lawmakers might be back as soon as next Thursday, just days before Christmas, to reconvene to, to do what? to approve a pay raise for themselves. If they don't do it before the end of December, they can't get it done until 2025. But if they do come back next week, they can get a $20,000 raise and it'll be effective in January. The big tricky issue though, is this issue of outside income. A lot of people say, hey, if you're gonna raise their pay, then you should restrict the money they can make elsewhere. You know, you might remember Sheldon Silver back when he was assembly speaker and he got entangled in that whole corruption issue because of the money he made as an attorney outside of his job as assembly speaker. And since then, the calls have only grown louder to restrict how lawmakers can earn money outside of their day jobs. Now, some of them say, hey, look, I work as a lawyer, I work as a pharmacist, I do this, I do that, and that gives me perspective to, you know, be a better lawmaker. But others say, hey, you know, with all, you know, this history of corruption in state government, you know, why not just make it easier for everything to be on the up and up by restricting outside income? And Governor Kathy Hochul threw her lot in with them that yesterday, Thursday, by saying, hey, if the lawmakers come back, they want to raise their own pay, then they can go ahead and do that. But they've ought to restrict outside income as well. It's only the right thing to do, according to Hochul and a bunch of other people. Wow. Uh, Zach, um, 
I'm lighting the menorah on Tuesday night. If you're in New York, come come uh, come around. Ooh, sounds like a good night. Are, are there going to be any good desserts? <laughs> All the time, right? You know, uh, Zach, there have a go. great no. week. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. What is today? Is former Governor David Patterson, and uh, to give us an update, what's going on in New York State, New York City, uh, and any visions he has. Uh, Governor, uh, seven days to uh, Christmas. Have you done your Christmas shopping? No, John, i got to get out there. Uh, I'll get to that. First, I'll say that uh, two interesting uh, comments this past Thursday from Mayor Eric Adams. The first was that he's asking the federal government for a billion dollars to manage the migrants who have come to New York in larger and larger numbers over the past few months. Now, uh, Mayor Adams can do that, and he recognizes the need for it, but so do all the other states where uh, the migrants are coming in, and since um, the regulation will expire, um, well, the regulation will expire in a couple of days, uh, we could see more than 15,000 new people coming into the city every day. That would be something like uh, having... Uh, Madison Square Garden empty out new uh, residents every day. And that really is a bad situation. It's got to be addressed. And I think even a lot of Democrats are starting to see it's just like in a family situation where there's a problem and everybody pitches in, but there's only so much that you can pitch in. And it's being driven by the encumbrance on the rest of the population and not any particular bias against the the immigrants you know president biden is allowing these immigrants to come in uh the states it's costing the states a lot of money it's really an obligation of washington because they're creating uh, the situation uh what do you think the chances are that uh we we you know new york could get an allocation from from uh washington well that's very well reasoned john really lays at the foundation of whether or not the federal government is going to be accountable or is it just going to let people come in and then leave that for the states to figure out. I would think, based on the fact that this is a an, a policy that's different uh, than the past administration, and in a lot of ways it's been different from the past two administrations, that uh, the federal government would want to participate. Would President Biden be, a, if, it's a, if, if it's a new Congress and they have to allocate the funds, would President Biden be able to uh, to do it? If the policy is still in place, even though the Democrats have lost the majority in the House, I think there are enough uh, Republican states that are going to have, and, you know, jurisdictions that are going to have the same problem, would be looking for the same relief. So he probably would get bipartisan cooperation if he decided to do it. What else is happening before the end of the year, and what do you think is going to happen in the new year? Well, another thing that Mayor Adams happened to say on Thursday was uh, he was holding up packages of marijuana that are being sold, and some of them have these decorative uh, uh, pictures on them, which would appeal to, obviously, a younger population. And he was expressing his indignation at this. The greater problem is that since marijuana is now technically legal in the state, uh, a lot of stores, and I mean, these aren't just people standing out on the street selling it. A lot of stores are actually um, selling it to customers. And um, 
this is going to create a real problem because the state, after all this time, has very few licenses, has different types of qualifications to get a license. The whole situation is, um, you know, in a state where uh, younger people are being exposed, proven to have an effect on the brain if you start smoking it before you're 18 or 19 or so. And then, you know, when you consider that we also have the problem that the largest killer of children, which you keep seeing on television, is guns. Well, it was, but it's been surpassed by fentanyl as the largest killer of children. And uh, so there's a lot of difficulty as we come into this Christmas holiday and hopefully uh, a joyous occasion. But when we get back, there are a lot of workable and sensible ideas that I think we need to implement to turn some of these situations around. What else are are you concerned about? I think that, uh, generally speaking, we're going to have to reconcile with a very difficult economy, which could become a stagflation if we're not careful, and a recession, I think, which we most assuredly will have to experience in 2023. So um, the outlook is a little grim, but I'm a real believer in people and in the ability to adjust the situations and to take the challenge. And that's what New Yorkers are famous for. And of course, that's what this country is famous for. So I'm uh, trying to stay as optimistic as possible, but you can't help but stare some of these problems right in the face right now. On Friday, uh, Goldman Sachs announced that 4,000 jobs are leaving New York. There are large institutions that are laying people off, losing employees, and you wonder where all these people are going right now. Well, you know, uh, Texas is big, Florida is big, Tennessee is big. And uh, don't forget, uh, if you're stuck in New York with uh, employees that don't want to work five days a week, maybe you open up in Texas where they do want to work five days a week. Well, that's a, that's a brain drain uh, coming from the great metropolis, which has always been sort of the nation's leader in solving problems and also in uh, commerce. And, you know, p- people have to do what's best for them. And uh, it looks like they're doing it. But I'm just hopeful that the Fed will uh, not have to keep raising interest rates and we'll get back to some form of mediocrity. Uh, we got a minute left. Uh, Governor, uh, what, you know, the new year, are you optimistic? Yeah, I'm optimistic because sometimes it, you know, you have these situations and, and, you know, there, there's a cycle and we're in the midst of a difficult cycle right now financially. And uh, I was reading that even the cryptocurrency, they, they have a couple of good years and they have a great year and then they have a real bad year and they had a real kind of bad year this year. So maybe these um, financial indicators will turn around and I think people themselves want to be unhappy. They're just distressed that uh, situations that they see around them and they're, they're not positive. So I think that if we continue to pray that we'll have a better year and work like we can get a better year, then we'll actually uh, live to see it. Well, Governor uh, David Patterson, thank you for everything you've done for New York and continue to speak out for New York. Uh, God bless you. Uh, Merry Christmas to come, and and uh, hopefully it'll be a great new year for all of us. Well, Merry Christmas and uh, Happy Hanukkah, which is 
just ending, and uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Thank you so much, and we'll catch up real soon. You're listening to a show that's just focused on finding solutions. It's the Cats Roundtable. It's seven days before Christmas, and we're looking up in the sky, and uh, with us today is Steve Cates, otherwise known as Dr. Sky. Uh, Steve, is there an asteroid coming this way that might have been the star of Christmas? Tell us. Good morning to you and everybody out there. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah. We have so many asteroids, and you know, I think sometimes the media gets it really much incorrect. It seems like every week we have an asteroid coming, but the one you're referring to is another one coming down the highway, one that's larger than a mile or so in diameter. But safely, as we report accurately on your show, we really don't have anything else to worry about about this particular asteroid, but that may not be the case in the future. And you can bet on this program, John, we're going to tell the listeners everything we can way in advance. But the interesting thing I wanted to mention, too, John, is this discovery and revelation from the Department of Energy with their U.S. National Ignition Facility. It's a research facility that's been working on the thing that we call fusion power. And a thing, it's very powerful. It's the power of what powers the stars. And without going into too much detail here, just to let everybody know what fusion really is, you take two atomic nuclei, you merge them together to form a heavy nucleus. And the mass of one of those that's combined is less than the two. And out of that, when you bring them together, that leftover mass is in the form of energy. And the sun, John, does this every second. It's been shining for four and a half billion years, as many people may know. So every second, think about this. If you and I had to pay and everybody listening this electric bill or this energy bill, every second, some 600 million tons of hydrogen is converted into 596 million tons of helium And out of that comes 4 million tons of energy. That's the energy that powers the sun. So, John, wouldn't that be amazing if we can actually harness this power? They apparently got more energy out of this little test that they did. And I think this is quite amazing. Uh, It's probably not going to happen for quite a while, but it's a positive, I think, in the right direction. It's mind-boggling that you get that much energy out of it than you put into it. It it defies everything that... uh, uh, we've ever learned in school when we were going to school. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, similar to, uh, uh, you know, uh, we own an oil refinery, and when, yes. uh, when you crack a, a barrel of gasoline, a barrel of gasoline is 42 and a half gallons. Wow. Because yep. you make lighter products out of it, you end up with 44 gallons. Or something like that. Just to mention, John, the details of this. It may sound a little like rocket science, but they did. They put in 2.05, and I'm just reading this, megajoules of energy into the system. And they got out of it 31.2 megajoules. So let me define what a joule is. It's the amount of work necessary to create one watt of energy for one second. So the bottom line is you, got, you put in 2.05 of something, okay, and you got out 31.2. So the, so the math is in the right direction. So you're right. You don't get that necessarily out of fossil fuel, but... We're so dependent, as you know, so accurately. And I hear every time I see you and watch you on the Fox Business Channel, you're so right when you talk about let's open up these pipelines because that will help us to reduce all this nasty inflation and all the other things. But imagine if we had fusion power, you know, we'd power starships into space. We'd power, of course, our cities. And- you never know. Maybe we can go warp speed. Well, John, we talk a little bit about the mystery. We always talk about the mystery of the week. And here it is. This is probably the best mystery of every show we've ever done. And it is what was 
the beautiful star of Bethlehem. And we go back to the three wise men. What were they? They were astrologers. They allegedly came from central Mesopotamia, maybe northern Persia. And they were men of wisdom. They were not astronomers, but astrologers. And their job was to predict future events to the kings and to the princes that, they ruled over, that were ruling over them. And if they didn't predict things right, maybe off with their heads or who knows. But these three wise men saw a distinct sign in the heavens. And we think that from biblical history, some say it was a supernova or a star that exploded. We discount that because we go back in time and say, well, where's the remnant? We don't see one in you know, the after effect of the explosion. We talk about comets. Comets were always looked, John, as a portent of doom. When Caesar died, a great comet appeared, and Shakespeare wrote, when comets are seen, you know, it, it heralds in the death of kings. It's not a good sign. So it probably wasn't a comet because there wasn't one at the time. But the birth of Jesus is questionable. We all know our birthday, but Jesus' birthday, according to the calendar, which changed, could be anywhere from 2 B.C. to 6 B.C., and maybe that's not accurate. And some say he wasn't born during Christmas time, as we know now, but in the spring of the year. So what could it have been? And I'm going to say this on your show proudly, that it could very well be divine inspiration, simply a miracle that science can't explain. But what we do know, back on the date of April 17th of 6 B.C., a celestial alignment of Jupiter, the moon, the sun, and the constellation Aries, which was a very respected sign to many of the people at that time, a sacred sign, and Jupiter was king both to Greeks and Romans, you know, Rex the king, and also that helped them maybe look toward the sky and see a symbol but the mystery is, what made them think that they needed to drive, or excuse me, drive, not drive, but ride camel to go to the place of an unknown birth? This is a great mystery. So in the sky, it was more than likely to put it to rest, and we really can't, a conjunction of planetary objects in the heavens, a mystery that we'll probably never understand. Steve Cates, have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holiday, and we'll catch up again uh, soon. And you too, John. Thank you so much. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. With us today is John Chachis, an investment banker, one smart guy, ran for Senate in the U.S. Senate in Nevada. And uh, he's been looking at the numbers and he is uh, a little bit angry about uh, certain things. Uh, John, John, tell us uh, uh, what you're angry about. Well, we, we've been watching this unfolding disaster in finance, uh, the bankruptcy of FTX Digital, a crypto exchange that had uh, come apart at the seams with a bunch of young people playing with other people's money. And that's a terrible thing, and it's a fraud, and there's going to be people that go to jail, young people that go to jail. But actually, the thing, the, the dirty understory here is really the political aspect of FTX's failure. And what we've discovered, it's not us, if you go to opensecrets.org, you can click right on the button. Open Secrets is an organization that tracks Federal Election Commission um, donations. And they have tracked that massive amounts of money, probably dirty stolen money, has uh, gone to political figures on both sides of the aisle. 80, $85 million dollars over a three-cycle period, the vast majority of which in the 2022 period. And it's incredible. And the number of, of large political figures who are having to now look at their account and say, well, what do I do with this money? And I think it's going to be one of these things where 
they're going to have to give it all back. How much money is involved here? This is the, the person that's got indicted, got arrested, uh, the gentleman yes. from FTS. That's right. Sam Bankman Freed and a couple of his uh, entourage. Collectively, these three individuals' names are on $84.3 million worth of donations. Sam Bankman Freed giving away 46.5, Ryan Salome, 23.5 and Nishad Singh, 14.3. So the three of them... Question. Was it their money, or was it the customer's money? There is the question. This money, it's pretty hard to look at anything that's happened at FTX or Alameda, their hedge fund, and presume that these three individuals, um, these three individuals made that money and that was theirs. But let's just for a second stipulate this. Let's just say we don't know. At a minimum, if you're a senator or you're a congressman, and you receive money from these three people, and there's this giant cloud over whether that money was stolen, it seems absolutely essential right now that everybody give it back. Uh, there is not yet a federally appointed court administrator for FTX, but there will be, as there was in the Madoff scandal. And in the meantime, I'm told by a United States senator uh, who shall remain unnamed, you know, he's already sent it back to the U.S. Treasury because it was the right thing to do, and he hopes all of his colleagues do the same. That's a real wow. $86 million, you said? $85 million. between the three of them. We don't even know how much money has, come, has been given away. And that, that's a tremendous amount of money. Is there anybody that it went to uh, more so than that? Well, <clears throat> first of all, the vast majority of the money, 95% of it, went to what are called PACs, super PACs, or, or hybrid PACs, which is to say moves it from one bucket to a new quiet bucket that you don't really know much about. And there are a few of those names that are very large. Um, two of those political um, committees uh, received more than $20 million each. One is run by a young guy who's 30-something uh, years old, graduated from Oberlin College, um, Another is run by a fellow who's about 40 years old. They then take those monies and they go and they make what are called permitted expenditures supporting candidates in their elections. So what's really happened is Bankman Freed and his two colleagues poured money into these PACs. Those PACs then went and distributed and spent that money, mostly toward the end of the 2022 election cycle. The vast majority of this was spent in the last weeks of the 2022 midterm elections we just saw, supporting candidates. About 75% of those expenditures, maybe more, 80, supported Democratic candidates. About 20% of the money supported Republican candidates, usually only a few of those. And the vast, vast majority of money went that way. Then there is a smaller amount, about you know 3% of all these dollars, that were given out directly to candidates in the usual $5,900 amount. And there's a long list, I mean, a very long list of members of the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate that receive that money. And I got to tell you, I don't think they have a choice. I think those senators and congressmen need to send it back immediately. That can be gotten. The problem is the $65 million that was spent through these, these PACs, you're not going to be able to find a way to get it back. I feel, given the cloud over what's happened with the money, the one thing that every senator and every congressman ought to be doing is they better open up their wallet and send the money back to the U.S. Treasury. It can be held by the U.S. Treasury until it's put into the hands of a federal trustee. Um, it, is, it is 
incomprehensible to me how anybody could accept this money from these people and not wonder was it stolen. John Chatches, thank you so much. And would you keep, please keep us informed as, uh, as things happen? Pleasure. Thank you so much. With us today is uh, former Congressman Peter King to give us an update. What's going on in our state, our city, our country with Republican politics? Uh, Congressman King, give us the update. John, basically, uh, you know, we're in a, a, still in a rough time as far as the economy and as far as crime. But there's one very, to me, positive development here in New York City. The uh, police commissioner, Keyshawn Sewell, has now uh, looked over a number of the cases uh, that were decided by the Civilian uh, Complaint Review Board. And uh, she's reduced the charges or dismissed the charges altogether in 72 different cases involving the police officers. To me, this is very good for morale. Uh, This whole thing started, really, in the aftermath of George Floyd and the defund the police movement of being very hostile toward the police. Commissioner Sewell is really sticking up for the men and women in blue. Listen, if somebody does something wrong, they're going to be penalized. But she's not going to uh, allow cops to be charged for the wrong reasons or to have uh, improper charges brought against them. I think this would be great for police morale. I think they need it at a time like this when things are going so tough. So I think, it's, uh, again, it's a guts what Commissioner Sewell has done, and I give her tremendous credit for it. Is she allowed to override the civilian review board? Yes, under the law, she has the final say. She has the final say. They make the recommendations to her. And uh, I, I think they assumed that she would be a rubber stamp, that uh, you know, there's such like an anti-police mood in some uh, circles, uh, and that she wouldn't want to incur the wrath of some of these progressive groups. But no, she's gone ahead and she's actually exercised her lawful discretion. And she's dismissed the charges altogether in some cases, reduced the penalties in others. And uh, listen, if the cop has done something wrong, she's not going to let him or her get off the hook. But uh, she felt that there was, at the board in these cases, had gone too far. And she wanted to, uh, again, establish uh, her authority, which she's entitled to, and also to let the police know that she's not going to stand by if she believes that they are being treated inappropriately. I, I am glad somebody is watching the, uh, the the people in blue, watching their back and making sure the right thing is being done. And uh, I, I commend uh, uh, Commissioner Sewell. What else is going on? Well, here's the thing, John. In Washington, I'm really concerned that it looks as if the Republicans may not be able to elect a speaker but when the Congress opens on January 3rd. The overwhelming majority of House Republicans voted uh, in their own conference, their own caucus, to support Kevin McCarthy for speaker. But the speaker is the only position in the House of Representatives that the entire House has to vote on. So even though he has the support of 90, 95 percent of House Republicans, unless and it's, but the Republicans only have a four seat majority. So if just five Republicans don't vote for Kevin McCarthy on the opening day of Congress where the whole House votes on the speaker. There won't be a speaker and they will have to keep voting and voting until somebody gets 218 votes. I don't see anyone else besides Kevin McCarthy having a chance to get 218 votes uh, in, uh, uh, on the Republican side. But on the other hand, uh, unless these five people come around, he may not get the, uh, you know, become the speaker. And we'll be in a situation where, John, like right now, there's still a number of uh, committee chairmen can't be picked because the speaker is supposed to basically have the final say on that. Uh, the uh, committees can't hire staff. They don't know who they can have on. Because, again, the, uh, all, all of these things have to be done when you know who the speaker is going to be. 
So long as that's undecided, the Congress is going to not be able to get anything done. It won't even be able to officially open. It won't be able to have any committee hearings. It won't be able to begin all these investigations the Republicans say they want. And this is all wasted time. The country's going through many crises now, whether it's immigration, uh, whether it's uh, energy, whether it's the economy, we can go down the line. And uh, until there's a speaker, none of this can be addressed. So I don't want the Republicans to look like the gang that can't shoot straight. I mean, we, they fought hard. They won back the House. That's a historic achievement. They won back the House. But now they won it. They can't do anything with it unless they hire a speaker, unless they uh, vote for and select a speaker. So uh, right now, it's, uh, I just hope they can uh, you know, talk some sense into themselves and realize that uh, they're going to look like fools before the American people unless they can get this done. And it's, uh, it's like shooting yourself in the foot. We have time for one more question. What would you like to cover? Well, I'm, uh, again, very proud that on Long Island we elected four Republican members of Congress. They're going to be down in Washington. They will be voting for a new speaker. They are going to be uh, united, not just as Republicans, but for all the people of Long Island. And, John, let's face it, uh, just like in 2021, uh, a number of seats on Long Island, including the county executive and the district attorney, uh, would not have been won without the support that uh, WABC gave them by constantly letting them get their message out. Same this year. People like uh, uh, Anthony D'Esposito, he uh, campaigned heavily. He uh, was on uh, 77 WABC a number of times, and uh, he, he won. He won in a district where there's 75,000 more Democrats than Republicans. But yet he won by 11,000 votes by focusing on the issues that you always talk about, crime and inflation, especially crime. He's a former New York City cop, detective. And he got the message out there. So I'm really looking forward to him taking office on, on, on January 3rd and fighting for all the people, Democrats, Republicans, independents, everyone on Long Island, especially in his congressional district, which is on the south shore of Nassau County. Peter King, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Make sure you go out and do some shopping for the, uh, for the holidays. For, for Christmas is only seven days away. And we'll catch up with you again real soon. John, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers interviewed by New York's first citizen. It's the Cats Roundtable. Joining us now is Assembly Member Rebecca Seawright, chair of the Majority Steering Committee in the New York State Assembly. And like so many people on the Upper East Side, she is outraged by these 5G towers that are being put up all over the city and up there on the East Side. Welcome to Cats at Night. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to join you this afternoon. Happy holidays to you and John and all your listeners. I'll be, I'm going to be, Rebecca, I'm going to be Assemblywoman C. Wright. See, I know you personally, but I'm going to call you Assemblywoman C. C. Wright on, on radio. Uh, I'm going to be lighting the menorah. I think uh, it's next week, March, uh, uh, December 19th or 20th. I'll let you know. Oh, please do. Yes. I'd love to attend. So, Assemblywoman, tell us about these Upper East Side towers. I mean, these are 32-foot 5G cell towers, and they're just popping up, and it seems like there's been no input at all from the people who live there, people who work there. Tell us what's going on. Yes. Well, well, thank you. We were shocked to see the rollout of up to 18 additional link NYC 5G towers. Last week at Community Board 8, we heard from City Bridge, the franchisee for the city, to deploy these monstrous 32-foot towers on the Upper East Side 
in Carnegie Hill and near Rockefeller University at New York Presbyterian Hospital in the East 60s. We also saw turnout of several hundred constituents who joined uh, the meeting at Community Board 8 to go over questions and express their outrage and concern. Our office sent a letter to Mayor Adams to ask for a moratorium on the Lynx 5G NYC installation on the Upper East Side. The New York City Office of Technology and Innovation oversees these initiatives. Our office has been contacted by several constituents who are outraged when they woke up one morning to find the 5G equipment on a light pole within arm's reach of their window. Outside their young baby's nursery, that was at Gracie Gardens at 90, 90th Street and York Avenue. OTI with the city did not respond to our office's request for information concerning the health and safety of our constituents. And it's not too late. We're still waiting on their response. OTI is also responsible for the planning of the Link 5G NYC towers. The community board, Local 8, followed our lead and advice and is asking in their resolution for an immediate moratorium, a resolution that was passed unanimously at the Community Board Transportation Committee uh, to disapprove of the proposed uh, presentation from City Bridge and ask for a moratorium on the planning and construction. I am calling today on the Mayor's Office of New York City to take this issue seriously, place a moratorium on any further 5G expansion. We cannot let the interests of corporate giants take over our streets. We must be critical of the health and safety impacts of exposure to radio frequency radiation. I and I, I understand, and this uh, Assemblywoman Seawright, I understand they exempted certain streets because uh, maybe certain people live between uh, the se in the 70s. So even though they're doing the 60s, the 70s were exempted. So does that mean uh, that uh, certain people have uh, knocked it out already in those areas? I understand that they have a site in the 70s and York Avenue where it's going now, up. I'm talking about the 70s and Madison Avenue. 70s and Madison Avenue. Um, I have not heard that. But what I do know is that the city has not shown any transparency. And what we need is an immediate hearing uh, calling on the city government to have 100% transparency and to explain to us how they chose the 18 sites on the Upper East Side. Currently, there's 1,184 Link NYC kiosks uh, across Manhattan uh, and up to 4,000 across the city. So we want complete transparency. How did they choose these sites? And uh, also to examine and explain uh, where the sites are going. Right now, they're supposed to be within 10 feet. The state of New Hampshire uh, instituted a commission that, that uh, in their final report, demanded that it has to be 1,640 feet from wow. households. So 10 wow. feet versus 1,640. That's a well, big because of the concerns of radiation. Right. You remember when me and you were growing up, um, and I'm much older than you, uh, if you the the old Alpine antenna, if you lived underneath or near the uh, Alpine antenna, it's not if you're going to get cancer; is when you're going to get cancer. Right, right. So you know, with this commission that was uh, a bipartisan 
legislation that created it in the state of New Hampshire, and it was recently signed by the governor. The 13 commission members had backgrounds that included physics, toxicology, electromagnetics, epidemiology, biostatistics, occupational health, and so on. And, the commission and what's the met- minimum? What was the minimum in uh, there? New Hampshire. New Hampshire? This was New Hampshire's commission yeah. that... Uh, well, what was the minimum re- feet that they said for you to place a tower? It was over 1,200 feet? It was 1,640 oh, feet. Wow. 1,640, that's about 40, four city blocks. Wow. And meanwhile, so let them, put in, put, let them put it in the middle of Central Park. And then meanwhile, you're talking about a tower, a 30-foot high 5G cell phone tower outside of a uh, baby's 100 window. 100 feet away baby's window. Horrible. Right. I, as a mother myself, right. I would be horrified. And these are t- part of 2,000 link 5G street towers that are going up all over the city, and everybody's saying it from Brooklyn to the Bronx that they just popped up out of nowhere. And that, why is the city putting up these towers? They said to expand f- the 5G network, but I imagine that the cell service up in Upper East Side is probably good as it is, no? It is, and uh, the city is... Um cashing in, and not only do they want to expand the connectivity, they're uh, making huge sums of revenue in advertisement. Um, the franchisee actually uh, owes the city right now millions of dollars. Um, they uh, say there's a, a backlog. Who, who, who are the principals in, the, uh, in uh, that company? Um, right now, the franchisee is City Bridge. Uh, they are the ones that the city has has contacted contracted with. Um, well, uh, Lydia, then we should do a study and see who are the principals and how much they made in political donations. Mm. <laughs> follow the money trail. I follow the money. Uh, Assemblywoman Seawright, we're out of time for tonight, but we'd like to have you on again in the near future. I think she also wanted to talk about Oh, tell us about it. So um, you also, Assemblywoman Seawright, you also wanted to talk about the hate crimes bill. It was recently signed into law by the governor. Tell us about it. Uh, We have about a minute left. Yes, thank you. So I had two hate crime bills. One of them was just signed in November recently by Governor Hochul. I want to thank her for signing this piece of legislation. Uh, It mandates uh, counseling and training as part of the sentencing requirement in relation to a hate crime. We've seen hate crimes increase with 43.5% of the total incidents reported being against race, ethnicity, national origin. Those are the most common. Our office was the victim of a hate crime. And so we felt it was very important with the rise in hate crimes to sponsor this legislation. We again appreciate the governor signing it. We have a second bill we'll be introducing in a couple of weeks. Um, This bill changes the rebuttable presumption uh, that is committed with a hate crime. And we're looking forward to uh, pushing this second bill this, this upcoming legislative session. Well, thank you so much, Assemblywoman Rebecca Seawright, for all that you do on the Upper East Side and all throughout New York City. And keep us posted about these 5G towers, please. I sure will. Thank you again for your interest in having me on today. And and again, happy holidays. Happy holiday. I hope you're there when I'm lighting the menorah. We'll see you soon. Terrific. Thank you. With us today is Dick Morris. Uh, He was an advisor to uh, President Clinton, an advisor to President Trump. And one smart guy, and uh, he usually hears things before anybody else hears them. 
Dick Morris, give us some good news. The Twitter file investigation, you know, the release by Elon Musk of his, of the Twitter files, puts into entirely new perspective the issue of the 2020 election being stolen. Uh, until now, we've been saying that the that for those who feel that the election was stolen, and I'm one of those, uh, they've been we've been focusing on the issue of mis of misdeeds by secretaries of state or by low-level bureaucrats, or even in some state cases by the governors of the states. But now the Twitter files makes it apparent that what we were talking about, what was an effort to keep the keep from the public the information of the, the Hunter Biden laptop. And with that information that confirms that Father Biden and Son Biden were both being paid by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Biden never could have gotten elected if that material had been public. And yet, when it came out two weeks before Election Day, we now know that the FBI worked overtime uh, with Twitter, with big tech, with the establishment media, uh, with uh, with the Department of Justice to discredit it, so that even and to call it Russian disinformation, and they suppressed the story, and the mainstream media didn't even cover it. There's to stories coming out now where uh, an FBI agent in San Francisco uh, was testifying that uh, his boss in Washington was giving him orders to how to you how to use and. And, and talk to uh, uh, the uh, Twitter folks? Yeah, the, uh, this was all a coordinated suppression of the most important information of the 2020 election, uh, information that would undoubtedly have led to Biden's defeat. And yet the federal government, not some private group and not some low-level secretary of state in Georgia, but the, the FBI and the DOJ were deliberately concealing information from the American people that had they learned it would have changed the result of the presidential election. It seems like the, his, President Biden's uh, uh, press people, President Biden's uh, uh, campaign people knew that he might not be accepted in public uh, and uh, uh, because of COVID, they didn't put him out in too, in too many campaign stops. Yeah. I yeah, mean, that's the only thing that. I could put my finger on. Yeah, but we know all that. The important yeah. thing that we don't know that Elon Musk's revelations show us is that the Department of Justice and the FBI became arms of the Democratic Party and tried to influence the results of the election by lying about a laptop computer and trying to pretend that it was Russian disinformation when they knew damn well that it was not and that it was true. So we have this unique spectacle in American history of the federal government intervening in an election to try to rig it, to make sure that vital information was withheld from the American people. Yeah. It puts the whole question of was the election rigged into an entirely new context. One nobody really knows. Thing. Nobody, nobody knows. And yeah. uh, that's and uh, by the way, on Friday afternoon, on Friday afternoon, I understand a judge in Arizona vo voted with Kyle Lake. Have you heard about that? No. No. Well, tell me about go that. go do your homework on it. What are you going to be talking about at noontime on WABC? 
well, this transformation that the Twitter files have brought to the entire issue of the 2020 election. And uh, they've completely changed it. And I think they've completely changed the 2024 race. I think before this, uh, Trump was searching for an issue. He was searching for something to give him momentum. But I think now he's got all the momentum in the world. And uh, this poll that was out yesterday shows him ahead of DeSantis by 22 points. So I think it's one of the most significant developments in this coming election. Well, it's a, there's a, it's a long way to temporary, but I'll be listening to you at noontime uh, today at uh, WABCradio.com, 770 on your dial, and uh, on your Alexa, and on your iPhone at 77 WABC. And I look forward to hearing what else you have to say. You take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.